And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Well, hello there, and thank you for tuning in once again. I'm Cam Edwards. Hope you've been having a fantastic week. It's been uh, it's been pretty good on the 40 acres. Very busy. The, uh, the it's, it's we're in this weird weather pattern. I think I've complained about this before, so I, I think this has been going on for a while now, uh, where we have really nice weather during the week, and then the weekend comes and the rain begins, and of course that's when you know that's when most of us really have time to actually do stuff is on the weekend. So it has been uh, it's been limiting. Uh, our ability to uh, clear out more of the garden, get it ready. Although I think we're we're in we're in decent shape. I don't feel great about where we are, but but we're in decent shape. First of all, uh, I I think maybe the raised garden beds might not have been the best idea. I'm not I'm not willing to to raise this as a uh, official point of contention with Miss E, mind you, but. Um, Man, raised garden beds are a lot of work. They, uh, you know, when you when you get ready to to plant a, a garden in the spring, typically, right? What are you doing? You're just uh, sitting there, and you you maybe you, you till the ground, you clear it out, and then you plant with garden beds, raised garden beds. Holy moly, seventy something of them. Every one of them has to be uh, cleared out of the weeds. Um, we we try to do that by hand, actually, uh, first go around. Uh, then we typically burn the, uh, the the top. We put down a uh, layer of compost, and then uh, on some of the beds, uh, not all of them, and, and then we uh, uh, mix it all in, and uh, then you're ready to plant. It takes. We've got it down to about 45 minutes or so uh, to clear out and, and get a garden bed ready. But there are 70 something of them, so we are uh, about halfway there. And uh, we don't need to get all 75 cleared right this very month, I suppose. Um, some of the beds we're going to use for fall crops, so they're not going to go in until uh, July or so. But still, you, just, you know, you're going down to the garden and you just see things that are... Look, I don't have a better homes and garden garden. I think we talked about this uh, on the uh, program last week. My garden is... I, look, I think it's pretty, but it's not photogenic pretty, right? But there's just something that just... It just drives you nuts when you go down there and you're weeding out all of the beds that you've prepared. And then you look and you see more beds that are just covered uh, in weeds. And it's very, it's very upsetting to me. So uh, we are continuing to slowly make progress. Uh, Miss E, uh, while I was at work on Monday, managed to assemble the the, uh, vast majority of the rest of the greenhouse. So everything's up except for the door to the greenhouse, and uh, and that is on tap for this weekend. That's one of our our big weekend projects. We are uh, actually going to put our tomatoes and our peppers in the ground this weekend. We uh, held off last weekend. It's still a little cold, honestly, in Virginia. Uh, this global warming stuff is weird because it's uh, it's now May and we're planting stuff. And last year we uh, were able to we were able to plant stuff a few weeks earlier than this. So I don't know. Must be that uh, weird climate global change warming. I don't even know what the acceptable phrase is for it anymore. But this weekend, we will officially put our tomatoes down. We will officially uh, put our uh, uh, pepper plants in the ground. Um, haven't seen any uh, uh, sprouts of leaves on the uh, potatoes that we've put in, but the carrots are coming up quite nicely. I'm very excited about that. Last year, we made the mistake when we planted our carrots. And here's a uh, here's a here's your first tip from the fool for you: don't plant carrots next to 
pumpkins or uh, squash or, 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 or anything really that is going to give you a uh, 8 to 10 foot vine that will grow out because it'll grow over your other garden beds, uh, including the beds in which your carrots are planted. And then you will find a couple of very lonely carrots that have managed to uh, grow despite the shade of the big you know, pumpkin and, and squash leaves. So uh, we've learned our lesson from last year. And the, uh, the carrots are actually doing much better. Uh, last year, too, one of our problems was when you, you plant carrots, you know, you just sort of seed the, uh, the surface. We, uh, we planted our carrots, uh, and then we had like two days of just torrential rain right after that. And I think most of the seeds uh, ended up getting washed away. But this year, this year we've got uh, three beds that are looking really good. Uh, our beets are coming in. I was a little concerned, quite honestly, about our beets. And we had such a good uh, beet harvest last year, which sounds weird. But I like beets now. I, I figured out I, I actually like beets. You roast them, a little bit of uh, garlic, and holy cow, oh, they're so good. Um, but anyway, I digress. Uh, last year, we, we had a, a seemingly inexhaustible supply of beets. Uh, we had to go in and thin out the garden beds because the beets were just growing so thick. We're not quite there uh, yet, but uh, right now the garden beds are looking sort of patchy. You know, there's a clump of beets growing over here, and then over on the uh, other side of the bed, there's a clump of beets growing over there, maybe a clump or two in the middle, but it's all kind of spotchy. Uh, that, that'll fill in, I, I think, over the uh, next couple of weeks. You can start to see even some uh, smaller beets uh, just starting to poke out. It's tough, too, because I, the, 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 the beginning of a beet uh, when it first pops out, resembles very closely the beginning of a weed uh, that is endemic in uh, in my yard. And so I've, we've kind of got to wait a little bit. You can see the green shoots pop up, and then you got to wait a few days to see, okay, is there a little tinge of red on the leaves? Because those are going to be our beets. If there's not that little tinge of red there on the uh, uh, portion of the leaf closest to the stem, then then that's going to be a weed. And so we can then uh, go and pull it out. So it's, it's been, it's this time of year, you know, where you've got some free time. What do you do? You, you grab your hoary hoary knife or you grab your uh, weed scythe. And then you go down into the garden. You spend an hour or so clearing out a couple of beds. It's just, it's just sort of what you do um, when you have that free time. At least that's what I end up doing this time of year. And I don't mind it because usually it's either early in the morning uh, before, uh, you know what, I'd like to say I do it before I can take the kids to school, but oh, I'm so tired these days. So uh, occasionally, you know, you uh, you drop the kids off at school, you, you go back uh, into the garden for an hour or so before you get ready for work. More often, I think, though, it's after your uh, your work day, your your paid work day is concluded. You get off of work, you get home. Uh, the, uh, the This week, it was not just weeding, but trying to find the time to mow the yard which uh just grows ever longer uh, and, and seemingly very very quickly this uh, grass is growing I, I hope that my vegetables do as well as the uh as the grass in my yard uh grows but you know that's when you do it and and so it's nice i mean like i said this week uh, during the week it's been beautiful it's been in the 60s skies have been clear you you're out there uh with your trowel and you're you're just sort of losing yourself it's very uh, it's very zen like and as the sun sinks down the stars come out. Uh, Venus is incredibly bright uh, right now, and Jupiter has been very easy to see as well. Uh, even with the uh, 
the big moon overhead, you can still see a lot of stars. And it's the time of year now where the uh, the night birds are out. And so we've got uh, two or three whippoorwills that are on the property. There's one that, that's down by the creek that you can hear uh, usually at night. And then there's another one that's uh, further away, uh, closer to the road in the woods. And they call back and forth to each other. And it'll get really annoying uh, here in about three weeks because it lasts all night long. And you just hear the whippoorwill, whippoorwill. And eventually it, it will <laughs> it will get uh, uh, like nails on, on chalkboard. But But right now, when you haven't heard that sound in months and months, uh, and the evenings are warmer. It was almost warm enough at night to uh, to tape the first forty acres and a fool on the uh, on the front porch. Almost, not quite. Maybe next week. It's also the time of year for festivals. We have the Heart of Virginia Festival, which is held the uh, first Saturday in May in Farmville. Uh, I will be there this weekend, uh, not just wandering around. I'll be at the Friends of NRA booth for a few hours, uh, volunteering, selling some raffle tickets for the uh, Wall of Guns, and letting people know about the Heart of Virginia Friends of NRA Dinner, which will be taking place uh, in the fall of 2015. It's always a good time. The, uh, the, they, they close off Main Street uh, and a, a couple of other blocks uh, right around downtown Farmville. And there's, you know, it's it's it's... It's the quintessential small town festival, right? Um, there's live music. There are a, a couple of food vendors, but uh, not really because there are a lot of restaurants uh, on Main Street that uh, uh, that folks will uh, pop in and out of. And then you know a lot of uh, a lot of the civic groups uh, have their their tent set up. Uh, it's right there on the corner of uh, right where Longwood University. Uh, meets downtown, and like I said, you get thousands of people uh, in Farmville for the uh, afternoon, and it's it's a lot of fun. I, I, I'm a sucker, I really am. I think we we may have talked about this before as well. I'm a sucker for small town festivals. One of the uh, the best days that I ever had uh, with my family was when we lived in Oklahoma. This was pretty early on in our marriage. Um, we just had uh, my wife's two kids. Um, my stepkids. And so it was the four of us and it was a Saturday and we decided we wanted to go to a festival. Uh, we ended up doing four festivals in Western Oklahoma, which was a lot for a day. Went to the Watonga cheese festival. which was amazing. Went to the goober festival in the colony, Oklahoma. I don't know. see, I don't know if they still are doing any of these festivals. Um, but, uh, the goober festival was, was a peanut festival. Uh, and then we went to the uh, Pumpkin Festival in Cordell, Oklahoma, which was right on the uh, town square. Uh, and I'd never been to Cordell, Oklahoma before. Never been back since. But it was a cool little town. Had a uh, you know old movie theater from the 1950s that they were restoring. Uh, courthouse was uh, just a really unique courthouse for Western Oklahoma, small town. Had a big dome on the uh, top of the courthouse. It was, it was just, it's cool to explore the state that you're in. And these small town festivals give you a way to do that uh, in, a, in a way that, you know, it's kind of fun. There's a destination. If I don't mind just hopping in the car and going. Uh, and, you know, wherever I end up, that's, that's sort of where I end up. I, I Actually, I kind of like doing that. Um, but if you got kids with you, you know, typically they want to know, are we there yet? Where are we going? So if you could say, okay, well, we're going to 
the Pumpkin Festival, if we're going to the Rhubarb Festival or the Heart of Virginia Festival, at least it lets them know that, you know, you have a destination in mind. Uh, whether they have a good time when you get there, of course, is always another story and uh, uh, largely contingent, I think, on the age of your children. But uh, my kids, actually, my kids are, you know, there's that, there's that age where, oh, I don't want to do this. Right. Do we really have to? Can I just stay home? Thankfully, my kids are uh, sort of in between that age. My youngest turned 10 a few weeks ago, so they're still excited. Uh, and they, they look forward to doing this stuff. And, oh, what can we do? What can we see? My uh, uh, 14-year-old son is now at the point where, you know, okay, well, we're going to go do this. Oh, can I bring a friend? That's the first question. Can I bring a friend? Not, do I have to do this? Uh, can I just stay at home? And I don't mind the, can you bring a friend question? Uh, most of the time, the answer is yes. So we actually, <laughs> and I got to cross my fingers and knock on some wood here, that, uh, that, this, that this window uh, stays open for a while. Because I know inevitably with my younger kids, hopefully my 14-year-olds have grown out of it, but uh, I, I know inevitably with my younger kids, there is going to come a day. When I want to say, hey, do you want to go do this? And the response is not going to be, yeah, it's going to be, do I have to? Got to just stay home. What do we always have to do this sort of stuff? But we'll, uh, we'll deal with those days when they come. All right, stick around. We have a lot more 40 Acres and a Fool coming up here, courtesy of the uh, Blaze Radio Network. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. ISIS has been trying to recruit disgruntled Baltimore protesters to join him. ISIS clearly has taken the idea to its president never let a crisis go to waste. Yes, yes, Black Lives Matter, come this way, please. Yes, yes. This is one of the things they posted. In Islamic religion, there is no difference between black person and white person. We kill you both. Right, exactly. <laughs> the Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. I'm glad that you're with us here for 40 Acres and a Fool. Coming up, we're going to hear from you. Uh, email address is 40acrefool at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Cam Edwards. On Instagram, it is uh, at Cam Edwards as well. Uh, I assume that most of you know about the uh, the day job, NRA News, Cam and Company, sponsored by Nosler. You can find us live each and every day on nranews.com beginning at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, live on Sportsman Channel each and every weekday beginning at 5 p.m. Eastern and on demand through the uh, NRA app, through uh, iTunes, through iHeartRadio. And I uh, hope that you will tune in for your uh, Second Amendment news and information each and every day on NRA News Cam and Company. And then once a week, uh, you'll uh, stream this and we'll talk about uh, what's going on beyond the uh, the, the big metropoli uh, across the United States. Actually, the Wall Street Journal had a pretty interesting story uh, the other day about the decline of uh, rural America, uh, population-wise anyway. Rural America struggles as young people chase jobs in cities. Now, this this headline really could have been written not just in 2015, but in 1915. 
1945. Um, this is a, a trend that has gone on for a long, long time. And I actually wonder if, if we're not hitting bottom at, 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 soon, if we're not going to be hitting bottom. Uh, you know, a lot of millennials want to live uh, in cities when they're when they're young, when they're starting out. But but most of the polls that I've seen uh, indicate that uh, a majority of even millennials say eventually they want to move away from the city. Uh, and they they don't want to live in the city. They either want to live in the suburbs or a surprisingly large number of them want to live in rural areas. One of the big drawbacks, I think, for a very tech driven uh, generation to living in the country is that you don't have the uh, the services that you are used to. Um, you know, if you're living in the uh, the cities or or a a, uh, a well connected suburb, you know, I don't have the option for uh, high speed cable internet, for instance. I don't have the option for uh, anything other than really uh, dial up <laughs> or or satellite internet. Uh, and that is my, my kids. We've talked about this before. My kids hate this because they are used to, uh, you know, being able to even even though we've lived here for a couple of years now, they still miss being able to just hit play on a, uh, a YouTube video. And it plays. Uh, they really miss, uh, you know, not having mom and dad say, all right, come on, get off of the Internet. We've we've used our, our bandwidth for the day. Um those are adjustments to make. And I think that, honestly, you know, you talk about the lack of jobs in rural areas. Clearly, that's a key. People are not going to move to a place where they don't have a job. But what makes uh, rural America uh, perhaps unappealing to some people, I think, again, is that, that, that lack of infrastructure. Now, that same lack of infrastructure, of course, makes, it, uh, makes rural America very appealing to, to other people. Um, at some point, I think, again, you, you, you hit that sweet spot, uh, either uh, geographically or in terms of the, the services that are offered. You know, one of the things that I've been, uh, I've been doing a lot of research on, on millennials and looking at a lot of the polls and the studies that have come out about the millennials and what do millennials want, what are millennials looking for. And it's interesting that uh, in, in rural America, uh, one of the things that you find people uh, are, are looking for is that connectivity. I think we're looking for that, uh, frankly, not just, you know, in terms of being able to access the Internet, but that connectivity uh, to a community, to a, a real community. Uh, there's been a lot that's been written about the, the isolation of farmers and the isolation of rural life and how social media has uh, enabled people who live in rural areas to communicate with uh, and to develop a community, it might not be, again, a community of people who live right there uh, uh, in their county or even in their state, but they are a part of a like-minded community. And and that's, again, I think that's critical if we're, uh, we're going to try to, you know, rebuild this, uh, this near frontier. Uh, those millennials that I mentioned, one of the things that they, apparently that they really would like to do uh, according to some of these surveys that I've seen, is that ability to telecommute, which we seem to be losing uh, in this country. I, 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 you know, 10, 15 years ago, telecommuting was held out as the uh, the, 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 the promise of a, uh, a revolution for 
office workers, right? And it was going to be green because we were all going to be saving gas by by not driving back and forth to work. And uh, it was going to just be, you know, it was going to help us in our productivity. And instead, we see more and more companies moving away uh, from from telecommuting. It, it doesn't it's not the uh, hot new thing anymore. In fact, I think now it's it's seen as. Well, we, you know, we, we don't know uh, what people are doing when they're not in the office. We uh, think they're slacking off. We think they're wasting too much time. Uh, and, and you see companies, you know, pull back. I, A, AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, had a uh, piece sort of contrarian uh, to what we are seeing here with uh, companies pulling back from uh, telecommuting. But... They point out and they say, you know, that telecommuting is good for workers. It's good for bosses. And I would say, you know, look, if you can live anywhere in the country uh, and you can do your job from your home. One of the big, the, again, the only drawback or one of the uh, the biggest drawbacks that you're going to have in uh, having rural America take advantage of that is in that connectivity. Right. If you can't get the uh, the Internet that you need at the speeds that you need uh, to do your job from home, well, you're going to cross that location off your list. I'm fairly optimistic, though, about the future. I'm fairly optimistic about uh, this problem being solved and uh, the idea of of these rural spaces, um, you know, really becoming more and more appealing, particularly in that 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 zone of the near frontier. Uh, where you're close to quote unquote civilization, but but you're not quite there, and it might be that uh, you know what you find are um, not quite uh, telecommuting jobs, but uh, maybe office hubs in small towns. That sort of you know creative space where uh, if you really need you know to do a video conference, you really need to talk to somebody for an hour or so. There's a uh, facility that you go and, and you know they've got the uh, the pipe uh, that uh, will allow you to do that. Uh, you can rent out space by an hour or a week or a month or whatever, have it on a uh, rotating basis. And, and maybe that's where you get that, that office space when you need it. Um, and the rest of the time, you know, you put up with the, uh, the satellite Internet and, and uploading and downloading at what seemed to be infinitesimally slow speeds. Uh, and you put up with that because, again, of the, the other benefits that you get from living in the, uh, in the near frontier. As I said, I'm 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 hopeful for the future, but uh, the present kind of sucks uh, right now when it comes to uh, rural America and jobs leaving. Matt Wilson uh, was quoted by the Wall Street Journal. He lives there in Greenwood County, Kansas. Uh, he owns a 35-person manufacturing firm called Invena. By the way, 35-person manufacturing firm. I mean, that's that's you know that's going to be great for Greenwood County, Kansas. Uh, and good for Matt Wilson for uh, for setting up his shop there uh, where where he grew up. He said most young people leave the country uh, for cities. But unlike him, he said most people don't return once machinists and mechanics earn big paychecks elsewhere. He said, quote, it's hard to get him to come back home. He says it becomes a self-perpetuating death spiral. It's not, he says, that people aren't moving here. It's that people are dying and moving away faster. Meanwhile, in England... You know, we talk about what's going on in the United States. Uh, in England, 
The uh, Telegraph reporting small farmers are under threat from a collapse in food prices. They say that the traditional British farming family will uh, soon be replaced by international investors in the creation of mega farms to feed China. David Hanley, chairman of the uh, group Farmers for Action, says if you look at the exodus now from the industry, the small British tenant farmers under threat. Tenant dairy farmers like ourselves are being crucified at the moment, he said. This comes as uh, dairy prices in the United Kingdom have hit multi-year lows as China's softening demand for milk and a Russian embargo on European imports has uh, hurt the British farming industry. David Hanley says uh, the collapse in prices left many farmers who are already operating on tight margins in financial difficulty. He says right now for many farmers, a liter of milk is now costing more to produce than it is to sell to a commercial buyer. Milk is now cheaper to buy than bottled water in uh, the United Kingdom. That's uh, pretty amazing. The Telegraph says a collapse in profits could see many small farmers giving up the occupation altogether, either selling their farms or handing the keys back to landowners in a shift that could end centuries of tradition in the countryside. There are, according to the Telegraph, about 10,000 dairy farmers left in England and Wales, which is half the number of dairy farmers back in uh, 2002. And the National Farmers Union says that could fall to 5,000, just 5,000 dairy farms in uh, all of England and Wales. And this happens, uh, or this is happening, by the way, as the uh, National Farmers Union there in England uh, says that uh, fewer and fewer uh, crops are being grown for domestic consumption and that uh, Britain's food security was in danger. Now, you might expect, you know, the National Farmers Union to say, hey, <clears throat> you know, Pay attention to the farmers. But even here, uh, you know, you can find these stories of the uh, falling commodity prices and how uh, a lot of farmers, you know, in the United States are operating on pretty thin margins as well. And uh, and it's it's been a, a rough couple of years for a lot of farm operations. In fact, the uh, the Associated Press uh, had a story about a uh, uh a group in Virginia, uh, Duffield, Virginia, it's down in the uh, southwestern part of the state, the, the part that I really want to go to that I haven't been to yet, uh, right there in Appalachia. This uh, group, Appalachian Harvest, uh, it's a nonprofit. Uh, it's, it's, it's been around for about, I guess, 15 years or so. It's now doing about $1.5 million worth of business. Uh, and they only get a little bit of their, their funding from grants at this point. Uh, and what they do is that they, they help farmers in rural areas uh, sell their, their, their produce, not at the local little farmer's markets where, you know, it might be tough. If you live in a very rural area, you're probably not going to have a lot of uh, customers at your farmer's market because most everybody else is growing stuff too, right? So what uh, this group, Appalachian Harvest, does is it helps these farmers in remote areas sell their produce and their products uh, to big grocery stores, which is which is cool because, you know, a lot of these big grocery stores, they're not going to deal with a small independent farmer that, that, that they're, they're not equipped to do that. Uh, and the small farmer is not equipped to sell to a, a big grocer uh, where, you know, they're looking. It's just it's it's a month long. I mean, it's a multi month long process to get your product in one of these grocery stores. I have a friend uh, who has been uh, working on her small business for a couple of years doing this. And it's amazing 
uh, to see how far she's come. But all of the work that goes into putting your product there on a shelf, if you're a farmer, I don't I don't see how you'd have the time to even attempt to do something like that. Uh, and so this group Appalachian Harvest uh, has stepped in and is uh they're they're growing they're learning uh about stuff as well this uh ap story talked about how the folks with this group are are uh, learning all about trucking uh right now but it's a uh, it's a very cool uh program uh, again designed uh originally i guess to help farmers as the uh the, the tobacco industry uh, started dying out uh, really in the tobacco growing in that part of the state of Virginia started dying out about 15 years ago. What, what can we do to, uh, uh, to replace those crops? And they've been really successful uh, at being able to do this. This is a model and then, you know, look, not, maybe not everybody's going to have the, uh, the, the business acumen, uh, the talent, the drive, the passion to, uh, to make this as successful as Appalachian harvest has, has done. I don't know that you can, you know, replicate all of the, the ingredients that make a successful business uh, just because you say, Hey, that's a good idea. I want to do it over here. But it seems like the idea itself uh, should be replicated or repli- replicable uh, around the country, not just in, uh, far southwestern Virginia. And and this, again, I think, you know, you talk about keys to, to growing rural America. If these small independent farmers uh, have an organization or an entity like this, you know, you, you, sort of a, a an update, I guess, on the co-op uh, mentality, then if you've got, you know, that, that ability to sell your produce, your product to a uh, reliable uh, purchaser, right? Who who you can count on? Uh, then obviously you're you're a little bit more stable. Uh, you've got the ability to start to plan ahead and build your own business uh, in a responsible uh, manner, not 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 so haphazard, and uh, you know having to rely on the uh, variances there in uh, in your local markets. I think this is just a. Uh, it, it sounds like a fantastic. Uh, program and one that you know again small farmers around the country could really benefit from even if it's not at this at this scale again Appalachian Arbor has been around for 15 years but uh, you got to start somewhere and if if we really do want to turn around the uh, decline in numbers we want to just stop that decline or slow the decline uh, in the uh, the population loss in rural America there's uh, really there's no shortage of ways that, that we can try to do that but making it making farming feasible uh, for more Americans who want to do it, well, that's going to be a key. All right. When we come back here on Forty Acres in a Fool, we've got uh, more of the news of the week as well as a look back in history. Stick around. We'll be right back here on Forty Acres in a Fool. This is Forty Acres in a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. up today on Pat and Stu. If they're old enough to be out there, if they're old enough to do this kind of stuff, yeah, then they're old enough to suffer the consequences. Not sorry. Not fully, though. Uh, not, not fully. They, they, fully, they didn't suffer kids. any consequences. They left them alone. Uh, yeah, but they're still children. No, they're not. Not My children <laughs> are act that way. I mean, there are not. Wow. And, and uh, they burn, children... They burn down pharmacies, oh, right? No, they don't. Pat and Stu. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 
40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm Cam Edwards. So we saw word this week, another round of, uh, you know, student assessments has been released. And once again, American kids don't know their history. They don't know civics, which is not really surprising given that we're really not teaching this to them uh, in a way that uh, that they're really going to get. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So I'm looking at my son's uh, history textbook this week. He's a high school freshman, uh, world history. He did, Ameri- he did a semester of American history last semester, so he was in world history this semester. And uh, he's got a big project due on uh, comparing the uh, major religions of the world. And so I'm looking at his textbook. And it, it just so happened that I, had, I he's, he's studying about the, uh, the Catholic Church uh, in the right before the, uh, the I shouldn't say right before, in the couple of hundred years before the, the Reformation uh, and the Counter-Reformation. So, you know, around 1200 or so. Um, and going back, you know, a couple of hundred years earlier. It just so happens that I had, I had finished reading, uh, rereading Tom Holland's The Forge of Christendom this past week, which talks generally about uh, Europe and uh, even the, uh, the, I guess, the European Christian lands uh, in that time period. And so I, my, my brain was sort of already there. And as I'm reading this, this, uh, this history textbook, I just, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so that got left out, that got left out, that got left These are all just dates and names. And uh, Pope uh, Innocent did this, and Pope Clement did this, and here were the repercussions. There's, there's no story. There was no narrative. There was no reason to, to get excited or interested in this information. And I thought to myself, well, no wonder why people think history is boring. If this is how it's being presented to them. I was very, very lucky uh, in high school. I had a lot of great teachers. And actually, you know, it's interesting. I'd say maybe the teacher that taught me most about history was one of my English teachers. <laughs> Believe it or not, uh, Penny Hampton. Uh, it was through her that I, I read Homer. Uh, we read The Odyssey. She uh, introduced me to Dickens. I got to learn about Victorian England. You know, one of the things about about reading history as stories is that you do get uh, connected emotionally. You get invested uh, in these stories. She introduced me to an author uh, who has remained one of my favorite authors uh, all these years since, uh, Jesse Stewart who was a farmer. He was poet laureate of Kentucky at one point, but uh, he wrote his first book of poems uh, on anything that he could find. <laughs> Burlap sacks, leaves. He, uh, we read his book um, called The Thread That Runs So True in, uh, in high school uh, English. And it was about his time as a, a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse in Kentucky. Uh, back in the 1920s and eventually in the 1930s and eventually uh, rising up to become a principal and a superintendent uh, all before he was, I think, 25 and then eventually uh, leaving the uh, field of public education for a, uh, for a little while. We talk about, uh, we were talking about last segment, the, the, the number of youth who are leaving rural areas for the uh, cities. And I said, you know, that, that could be a headline from, uh, 1915 or 1945, too. This has gone on for a long time. In Jesse Stewart's uh, book, Beyond Dark Hills, which was 
sort of his autobiography that he uh, wrote as a college student uh, at Vanderbilt. Uh, he writes about this. I mean, Jesse Stewart grew up poor. His dad was a coal miner and a farmer, and when he got done in the mines, that's when he would farm, and Jesse and his brother were expected to, to, uh, to, to do basically everything that his dad couldn't do uh, there on the farm as he was growing up. And he writes about uh, having graduated from high school. He says, uh, I was now working on the farm and going with my Maria, which was his girlfriend at the time. We went together and laughed together because we were happy. The days went rapidly by. At home on the farm, the crops were planted again and the corn was bursting through the soil. The oats were green on the hillsides. His mom said, Mitch, that boy ain't what he used to be anymore. I worry a lot over him. Some mornings I get up and I walk the floor because he doesn't come home. Gets in here at 1 and 2 in the morning, 3 and 4 some mornings. I don't know what's wrong. And his dad said, yes, and much of the corn land is lying idle this year. He don't take any interest in his work anymore. He used to be as good a worker as I ever saw go out in the field, but I can't say that now. He's getting trifling about his work. I found him asleep in the plow the other evening when I came in from work. He's got it in his head to leave the old place. His mom said, yes, I hate to see my children go. Jesse Stewart wrote, I wanted something that I could no longer find in the hills. I wanted to go away and leave and stay years and then return to see the change. I wanted flashy colors, gay clothes, parties, romance, the splash of the Ohio water river against the shore, the, the darkness, the red lights reflecting on the oozing and splashing waters. These things appealed to me more than any farm with all of its trains of crows, hawks, hounds, rabbits, and buzzards, more than all the dark woods and the white clouds floating over. There was beauty in dancing women on a showboat, their bodies swaying to lively music. I thought I'd get a job on the boat. I asked the manager about it. What kind of acting can you do? Can you sing or dance, he asked. I'll sing a little, but I can't dance. I'll give you a job shoveling coal down to the engine room for your board and $7 a week. You'll play hell. I want something different to that. I'll stay on the farm where I am first before I take it. That's just a, a little passage from uh, Beyond Dark Hills. The, and again, that, that desire to leave, that desire to see the world, um, it's been around a lot longer than the last couple of years. That desire to, to, to get a job uh, beyond the farm uh, has existed for a number of years. But I wonder how many of those uh, young Americans today who are leaving the farm feel in some way like Jesse Stewart did. I wanted to leave and stay years and then return to see the change. I wonder how many of these young Americans who are uh, leaving rural America want to come back at some point, just not, not quite yet. When Beyond Dark Hills came out, this was not a history book, right? I mean, this was published in the 1930s. This was a, uh, an autobiography. But now time has passed, and, and we can read these, uh, this book and others as history. We can read these first-person accounts that, that, that weren't necessarily meant to be uh, read 100, 150, 200, 500 years later. But we can read them, and we can learn about the individuals, the real flesh-and-blood people that make up the, uh, the dates and the facts and the figures in our textbook. And when we can see history as a collection of real people and their stories, I think that's when it becomes interesting. You know, if, if you sit most high school students down and say, all right, class, today we're going to learn about the Great Depression. <sighs> Do we have to? But I, I believe 
that if you gave the average high school student a, a copy of Jesse Stewart's Beyond Dark Hills and say, all right, do you want to know what it was like to grow up in this country, in, uh, in, in rural Kentucky, in a small town, as a uh, poor farmer? Back in the 1930s, you want to know what it was like to live through the Great Depression. As someone who was roughly your age, what might it have been like for, for someone like you? Here, go read this book. And hear the, uh, the voices of uh, not just the author, but the, uh, the, the, his friends, his relatives, the people in his community, and what they were going through and what they were living with. And I guarantee you, uh, by the time they finish that book, they're going to know a lot more about the Great Depression than they would from reading a history textbook. Now, they might not be able to tell you the uh, winning margin for uh, Roosevelt in the 1932 election, right? They might not be able to tell you uh, about the, uh, the, the, the legislation that was introduced uh, in the uh, New Deal and, and what the uh, votes in Congress were. But I'd say that they can go back and they can learn that. Or they can look it up if they need to. What you can't look up on Wikipedia, what you can't Google, are these stories, are these narratives. For that, you actually have to spend some quality time reading. So I think, you know, I, I, living in Virginia, I'm surrounded by history. Uh, every, everywhere I go, every drive I take, you know, there are hundreds of years of history. Uh, that surround all of us. Most of us are are completely ignorant of the uh, the the historical stories and the uh, events that took place on the ground, you know, where we stand or, or not far uh, from where we are. And I think if we can again, if we can reconnect, if we can uh, start to tell those stories of those people, then maybe I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Uh, we become a, a more historically literate uh, society. Maybe we, we, we then are not so doomed to repeat uh, the mistakes that were made before us. But you got to make history interesting. And I don't, I don't fault our, uh, our eighth graders uh, in this, uh, this national assessment. I don't fault them for not knowing their history or for not knowing their civics. I fault, and I don't fault their teachers. Uh, I'm not saying that the teachers are lazy. I, I, I think that, again, I think we are, are failing uh, to actually educate our kids and to reach them in a way that this information will stick. I'd love to know what uh, you think, and I'd love to know what, uh, what, what your favorite like local historical story is from where you live. If you if you know one of those local stories uh, here in Farmville, you know, there's again, there's a ton of history. We talked about uh, Appomattox and the surrendered Appomattox and, uh, uh, you know, just days before Lee's army comes uh, uh, going through Farmville and they're starving. Right. And then Grant comes by a, a day after. But uh, this environment uh, here in, in, in Farmville, again, is home to a lot of history. There was uh, uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, really, this was one of the uh, forefronts of the civil rights movement in the uh, 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, public schools were shut down for a period of time rather than integrate. Uh, Martin Luther King actually uh, addressed 
uh, a crowd at a, a church maybe a block away from uh, our studios. Going back uh, 100 years, actually more than that, going back uh, 150 years before the uh, civil rights movement, and there was a uh, community of free blacks at the uh, turn of the uh, century, the, the 18th to 19th century. So right around you know 1800, there was a community of free blacks who lived uh, right outside of, of uh, where Farmville uh, was then located. It was on a 400-acre uh, uh, parcel of land called Israel Hill. And that community existed, uh, that free black community existed in the heart of Virginia right up to the, uh, to the Civil War. And I, I, again, I'd, I'd, I'd guess that most of our uh, students uh, who are sitting in class in uh, Farmville, Virginia, they, they're learning about the Civil War, right? They're learning the dates. They're learning the history. They may even uh, go take a field trip to Appomattox. Um, I hope that they would anyway. But I don't think they're learning about Israel Hill when they are uh, reading about the American Revolution. I, I don't know that they're uh, learning about Peter Francisco, the uh, Revolutionary War hero who lived not far from Farmville and uh, wielded a, was described as a, 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 a broadsword uh, in battle that was presented to him by uh, General Washington. I don't think they're getting those those stories that that kind of grab you and, and make you say, "What? Really? What? I want okay. I want to learn more about this. I want to learn more about these people." So don't expect uh, school to do that for your kids. I think uh, you, as parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, uh, whatever, you, 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 we, we have to do that. We have to take this responsibility uh, upon ourselves. Uh, don't don't expect your kids are going to love history if they are, their only exposure to it uh, is a textbook. I'll be really honest with you, too. Uh, you know, this is not uh, I'm not saying this simply because uh, we are coming to you here, uh, courtesy of the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, but but Glenn Beck's Miracles and Massacres and Dreamers and Deceivers are fantastic ways, I think, to get people interested in those stories of the individuals that make up American history. Uh, they're they're great books. They're, you know, a chapter or uh, two on, uh, on, on, you know, specific individuals throughout American history. Uh, they're, they're, you know, a, a quick read. You don't have to read the entire book in one sitting as, uh, I tend to do. Um, they're, they're, they're fantastic resources for getting people interested in history. And they're a great jumping off point to a universe of stories of Americans who have, uh, uh, impacted this country, changed this country for the better and for the worse. So maybe that's where we get started. We, uh, we read Miracles and Massacres and Dreamers and Deceivers, and then we uh, uh, read that to our kids, and then we go from there. All right, when we come back here on 40 Acres and a Fool, I'd also recommend Beyond Dark Hills by uh, Jesse Stewart. Uh, when we come back here on 40 Acres and a Fool, we're going to get to some of your thoughts. Again, the email address is 40acrefool at gmail.com. Stick around. There's much more 40 Acres and a Fool on the way. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Chris 
Salcedo. The government's agenda is to consolidate world resources under the rule of the elites. That's what communists do. It will ultimately fail, but there will be no America there because the, the, the liberals will have weakened us from without and from within to such a degree to where we won't be a factor in standing up to the totalitarian regimes and ultimately America will fall, unable to protect ourselves. Chris Salcedo, Saturdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards returns now on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool. Cam Edwards, your host, and it is time now to hear from you. I love this part of the show. Uh, let's see. The email address again is a 40 acrefool at gmail.com. Uh, Ross wrote in, says, hey, Cam, wife and I moved out from a town home to a somewhat suburbia USA outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, to the uh, to the western part of North Carolina, live in Mount Holly, says a, a little town full of good old Southerners. We tried on almost vain every year in our town home to grow tomatoes, lettuce and other things and five gallon paint buckets and large Rubbermaid containers. He says, uh, we got lucky, but it, it just got both of us hooked. So now that we have land, we have one point three acres. We decided to do raised beds using cinder blocks, since we knew the soil would be almost impossible to deal with. Uh, Like you, Ross says, we are growing several different tomato varieties and some peppers and uh, such, as well as strawberries. We didn't, you know, we ordered strawberries last year, Ross, and they, uh, they, they came to us and it was, was, there was snow on the ground uh, when they arrived and the strawberries didn't make it. Uh, So I wish you the very best of luck with your strawberries. We have our blueberry bushes that are, uh, uh, not quite starting to fruit yet, but the blossoms are, are there. And then the uh, the blackberries are uh, starting to come back as well. So those will those will be coming up for us. But uh, I wish you the very best with your strawberries. Ross says, this year, if all goes well, I plan on going to the restore and buying a bunch of windows to frame out a greenhouse so we can start some of our plants early. Uh, we are starting small, but our dream is to own some real land one day and really do some farming like you have. Uh, Ross, that is awesome. And, you know, good luck with the uh, the greenhouse. That was originally our idea as well. We went to a um, – we had gone to an auction and met a, uh, a woman who had an antique store. Not really a formal antique store, but she would open it up a couple of times a year. It's basically just stuff that she had collected. And there was an outbuilding that was just full of – it was just full of doors and windows, and they were pretty cheap. They were pretty affordable. Uh, and and my wife and I talked about, okay, well, wouldn't this be cool uh, to actually build a greenhouse out of out of this material? Uh, and it and it would have been, <laughs> but but we didn't go that route. So I wish you the uh, the very best, Ross. Uh, like I said, our greenhouse still not quite completed yet. We've got the uh, the door to put up, and then then we'll be ready. We can plant our uh, fall crops out of the greenhouse and not uh, in our house. Angie uh, wrote in as well. Now, Angie, I, I know. Uh, we've had Angie on NRA News Cam and Company before, Angie Schweigert, and she is just an awesome person. Uh, so, Angie, thank you for listening. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, you're listening. She said, uh, uh, following you on Cam and Company, being able to talk on your show about my book and my newfound love of shooting and even having you participate in my tap rack and cure last month with donations. So of course she says, I'd follow you to your new show, uh, which she says, I may be an even bigger fan of, uh, you and Missy e have made me laugh on several occasions. Although our homes may be different old har- old farmhouse to what uh, we built ours 11 years ago. We too says, Angie are trying a lot of the same things. We have just shy of 20 acres with a gun range included. Isn't that, isn't that awesome, Angie? I got to say that really is so nice. And one day, 
I'm not just going to have a place to shoot. One day I'm going to have an actual range. We have a large clearing for the house, but uh, the rest is wooded, says Angie. Our garden continued to grow every year and now takes up a large hill in the back. I started a greenhouse inside with a tent house purchased from Walmart over this past winter. Angie says I started my seeds too early. Uh, only three weeks ago, and everything's ready to go on the ground. We still have a flurry here and there in Michigan. You know, again, we did that last year, and we lost about half the stuff that we put in the ground. I'm a little concerned. Uh, so now I'm a little paranoid, Angie. I'll be honest with you about what's going to happen when we put our tomatoes and our peppers uh, in the ground this weekend. But but I'm keeping my fingers crossed that. Uh, and we're going to actually hold some in reserve. We're going to keep some there in their little cow pots and. Uh, put them out again in a, in a couple of more weeks when they're uh, even hardier. Uh, Angie says, your wife also gave me an aha moment when she said that beet seeds were impossible to separate and they come up in clumps. I have four pots of massive little seedlings in the greenhouse downstairs and I was wondering what I did wrong. Yep, didn't do anything wrong. That's just the way beets come up and you will have to thin them out, uh, which, you know, I, 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 I don't like that because oh, I'm wasting food. But, uh, but yes, you do have to thin out the beets and uh, you'll likely have to thin out your carrots as well if, if, if you're uh, planting those and, you know, they'll come up again in, in clumps. Uh, Angie says we planted several fruit trees as well, and we're trying our hand at that. We have blueberry bushes covered by this amazing wooden cage my husband built where we, too, had to free a robin last summer. Oh, a cage for your blueberry bushes. I like that idea. In the past few years, she says, we've talked about chickens, so I now have eight pullets. Silver-laced Wyandots or Wyandots in my home office in very large boxes, making a dusty mess of everything. My keyboard is dusty as I type. And there's a pet rabbit in here too, says Andrew. She's two years old and my baby, much like a cat, no eating or raising her babies. Yeah, I am gonna I I, I you you brought me back, Angie. I'll be honest with you. The eight pullets in your home office in uh, very large boxes, making a dusty mess of everything. Yeah. I remember those days, and I don't ever want to go through that again. Really, that was, uh, whew, it is so dusty. And you clean every, no, you don't just clean every day. It's not even a matter of cleaning, I clean every day. No, 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 no. You clean multiple times every day, right? It's, you're just dusting stuff off, and you're just thinking, ah, oh, these things need to be old enough to get outside now. It needs to be warm enough for them to go. So, you know, we've been lucky. Uh, we, we actually uh, have a, a friend who has an incubator, uh, has a heat lamp, and has the space, and uh, and so so we've worked out a deal where uh, where she'll raise uh, some of our chicks up to pullet size, and then she gets to keep some of them, uh, and then we don't have to have them in our home office. So it's worked out well. But I would like to have a uh, what I would really like to have is a an actual you know honest to goodness uh, space for chicks outside that is that is heated, uh, where you know you don't need a you don't need a full size coop. Uh, for the little chicks, you, you know, a, 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 a heat box is going to be, uh, you know, or a heated box is uh, going to be enough for these little chicks as long as they have access to the uh, to fresh water. And, you know, they could even, you could you could put up a, a, a little fence there and make sure that, you know, the holes in the fence are small enough that the, uh, the chicks can't get out because they're pretty tiny. But uh, I would love to be able to actually raise chicks on the farm without having them in my kitchen, Angie. And the uh, the home office, which is right off of our kitchen, chickens should only be uh, 
eaten there in the kitchen. But silver lace Wyandots are beautiful birds. They're so stunning. Uh, just those, as 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 the name indicates, the tips of their uh, their black feathers are just tipped with silver, and they've got these silver streaks. It almost looks like fish scales on the birds, and they're just beautiful chickens. Um, we had a couple of silver lace Wyandots. They they were victim to the coyote. Uh, the coyotes last year, Angie. So I, I, I hope that you have much better luck uh, with your silver lace Wyandotes. Angie says we're struggling to get a coop or a shed built or deciding on one at all as the chicks grow super fast in the house. If you have any advice on the size uh, or, or design of the coop, that would be helpful. Well, okay, so if you've got eight, um, and, and that's about the number that you're going to stick with, you don't need something too big. You really don't. I know a lot of people say, well, the, the, the chickens need their space. It, look, if the chickens are have space to uh, roam around uh, during the day, at night what you're going to find is that the chickens do tend to roost together, right? So you want to make sure that, you know, they've got a, a roosting spot. Uh, and if you've got eight pullets, you're going to need more than one roosting pole. Uh, you're probably going to need two roosting poles. You're going to need some uh, boxes for them to lay their eggs and again, probably, you know, if you're looking at eight pullets, you're probably going to want to have uh, close to eight boxes, although they won't all be in there at one time. But they they, they do uh, the chickens that we have anyway. Um, you know, it's sometimes we've got right at the moment five lane hens uh, and it's not uncommon to see two or three of them uh, in the coop at one time laying eggs. So you want to make sure that they've got space. Otherwise, they'll lay their eggs outside and you'll never find them. Uh, or you'll find them a week or two later, and that's always depressing. So, uh, you know, I would say don't go, you don't have to go overboard. Don't go buy a coop from Williams and Sonoma. Uh, no offense to Williams and Sonoma. Uh, I've had friends who have built their chicken coops out of pallets, and it's worked very well. Uh, we we actually bought our coop from a guy who built coops, and I'm not going to tell you the guy's name or where he's from, but we were stupid, <laughs> and it's not a very well built coop. Uh, there was there's there's there was no way for us to there's no access there's no rear access uh, panel on this coop, so there was no way for us to get the eggs out of the lane boxes. So we had to cut a uh, a square or rectangle and and add hinges and add uh, locks uh, to the back of this coop that we had bought because there was no way for us to and he delivered it by the way so we 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 didn't have a chance to like pick it out and note the flaws beforehand um so don't do what we did uh that's that's the other thing is you don't need something that's too big uh make sure that you can get access to the eggs uh make sure that it's it's you know think about the cleaning of the coop as well and how easy uh, it's going to be to get in there and, and clean out the, the coop and the, the straw and the poop and uh, everything that needs to get cleaned out. Um, so for that, you might want, if not height uh, accessibility for, for a human, uh, you, you might want to just make sure that, you know, you can get a, a rake in there or a, a broom in the coop and then pull everything out uh, without it being too much of a pain for you. Angie says... Uh, I'm so excited to continue to listen to the podcast. Uh, as a devoted Instagram follower, I've enjoyed the numerous pictures of the bacon seeds, the goats, and the sunsets. Keep it coming, says Angie. We are listening. Well, Angie, listen, thank you so much. And and you are such an inspiration to me. Uh, and, you know, it's look, this is one of, the, one of the really cool parts of my job is knowing that there are so many incredible people 
with great stories uh, and wonderful personalities who who actually listen uh, to 40 Acres and a Fool or they're watching or they're listening to uh, NRA News Cam and Company. It's just it's constantly humbling and uh, incredibly gratifying. So thank you, Angie. You are an amazing woman. And I don't know how, again, as was, as with anybody who does this, I don't know how you have the time to do everything that you do, but uh, you find a way. And I want to hear more about your silver lace wine dotes. Don't just be a cam creeper, uh, as you called it. Uh, send in those emails. Let me know how the uh, how the farm is going there in Michigan. And, and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, before long, you actually will be able to put uh, your uh, plants in the ground. All right. Unfortunately, that is about all the time that we have for you on this week's edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. But thank you for being a part of it. Hope that you have a fantastic week ahead. And the uh, weather is warm. The sky is blue. Until we talk again, be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot. And we'll see you here soon on 40 Acres and a Fool. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. 